All right, take your Bibles and turn to Habakkuk. This is week number three. It'll be the last time we'll be in this particular book. So by now you know exactly where it is so you can get there quickly. Uh, prayer concern, uh, would you pray for my daughter? Uh, we got woken up in the middle of the night. She was rushed to the hospital last night. She has appendicitis. Uh, even now as I'm standing here, they're trying to find a surgeon and to do a surgery today. So if you keep in prayer, she was having a... Uh, friends weekend with all of her friends from San Antonio come up. They were staying down where the cattle yard is in a very fancy hotel. Uh, I got a chance to shop all day and then by yesterday evening things went downhill lightning fast for her and now she's in the hospital so we'd appreciate prayers. Uh, she called about two, woke us up and we live about three blocks from her and she needed somebody to watch the kids. They were heading to the hospital so my wife looked at me and said go back to bed. You won't be a bit of help. And she went and took care of them. So I guess that's what grandpas do. We go back to sleep while grandma goes and takes care of all everything going on. And Ryan, you look too rested for Disciple Now weekend. You know what I think I'd do? I'd volunteer to clean the houses of everybody. <laughs> you probably don't want him cleaning your house. I am so glad I didn't go to CTCU this last Monday. My wife was all set up. She had her TCU jersey on. We got every, all the kids came over. We had hamburgers. We, had, we were all ready for a national championship. Didn't happen. In fact, she was in her pajamas at the end of the second quarter. <laughs> she didn't want to wear her jersey anymore. And my grandsons, who both played football, and said, they're going to come back. TCU always comes back. Then about midway through the third quarter, they said, Pops, we're going home. And so I went to bed after that and didn't even notice how worse it got afterwards. But anyway, at least they made it there, and that's a good thing. Uh, and then I've got guests here today. Paul and Carol Schlett right over here, remembers my church in San Antonio. And so they just thought they'd drive in from Missouri to hear me preach today. So but they're in town anyway, so it's good to see them. He had a big impact on my grandsons. He taught RAs. We had a really good RA program where I was at. And he really did an amazing job with my grandsons, and I've always greatly appreciated it. And uh, Mission Heart, the whole nine yards, we appreciate seeing you guys. We've had a, we were together all day yesterday, and so they, they came down to Greenville today to, to join with me, so it's good to have them. And then I got to join your staff last week in staff meetings. First time I've had an opportunity to do that. And so I came dressed for staff meeting. I had my flannel shirt on. <laughs> and not a one of you had one on. I didn't realize that's formal dress on Sunday, so I will. <laughs> All right, enough kidding around. Let's get into this book because this is a very important book. And I think one of the most profound messages is now where we're going to be in the third chapter. And so in a moment, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4 because we're going to learn, a, uh, uh, we're going to learn something key from this. You remember last week, the key verse was 2-4, and really 2-4 and 5, but 5, the righteous walk by faith. I mean, that is the answer for all of us, that we come to the point we trust in the Lord Jesus, but every day we walk by faith and trust in him. Paul was very clear about that whenever he wrote to the church at Colossae and said, as you have received Christ, so you walk in him every single day. But then you get to the third chapter, you're going to find Habakkuk's reaction at the end, and we won't read it till we get there. His reaction at the end is pretty stunning. Because what is about to happen where he lives is they're losing everything. Their homes, their city, 
War is going to so devastate Jerusalem, it's not quite the same for a long time thereafter. And how he reacts is what is God's will for your life and my life every single day. But he does it in the worst circumstances and situations you can imagine. You and I living in America don't know what it is to live that kind of situation. We may think things are a little difficult now in the days in which we live in, but none of us have been where he is. In fact, about just before COVID hit, I was at Southwestern Seminary for meetings. And it was a consortium of all the presidents of all the seminaries in Central, South America, and the islands. And so I was invited because of my work in, in Cuba, and so I was there. And it, it was fascinating listening to these men from all the different countries in, in Brazil and Argentina and Colombia and Venezuela and then Costa Rica and all the way up into Mexico and from Cuba and from the other islands. They were there talking about the work of God and all that was unfolding. So we were doing that, and it was what you'd normally expect at a meeting like that, hearing and seeing what's happening in all the different countries when it came to seminary education is what it was about. But they had the president of Venezuela Seminary stand up and speak to the guys after we'd finished all the meetings. And he got up and he said, you need to pray for our people. We have nothing to eat. Every professor in my seminary has lost 65 pounds on average. Our country is so collapsed that we don't go out at nighttime at all anymore. It is too dangerous. There is no food. We live by scraps alone. And he began to unfold the complete collapse of one of the richest countries in the world to absolutely nothing, and that's what's been taking place in Venezuela. Well, the president of the Columbian Seminary got up, and he spoke to the men, very eloquent speaker, really an amazing man. And he said, guys, let's step up. We all have accesses to resources. We're going to help them. And he says, I, I, and he put a lot of money on the table right there that he had access to so that we can buy them food. And the president of Venezuela got up and said, listen, I appreciate it, but there's no food to buy. There is no food to buy. You can give me a million dollars and I can't buy anything for anyone. The president of Columbia got back up and said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll ship food to you. I have access to 18 wheelers. We will ship food to you. And he, he got up and says, you can't do that. Your drivers will be killed and it'll be stolen before you ever get it to us. You can't help us. I've never had to live like that. I've seen it when I go to Cuba. They're there today. No food to eat. Shortages. They don't walk the streets at night, which every Cuban does when they go around because they don't have vehicles. But it's too dangerous. We're not there. We're not even close to it. But sometimes the people of God have to walk through those moments. I pray God never allows us that, but you never know in the providence what he's going to unfold. And I think if we ever had to as a people, we'd not do well. And I think it's because we've had a view of the second coming all of my life. I grew up with this, that things might get bad one day, but before they get too bad, we're all going to rapture out of here and leave it to everybody else. I was giving a major speech in Washington, D.C. to a group, and I referenced that. I said, we all grew up with the Left Behind series, that we'd leave everybody behind and we'd go on. Trouble is, we woke up in America, and we as believers have been left behind by the culture. 
What if God doesn't come here soon and things got that bad? It's easy to sit here in church on Sunday morning and worship and give praise. But what do you do when everything's gone from you? And that's where Habakkuk is. And we're not close to that. I'm not even going to say we're going to even go near that. But we can learn from these people. They have been there. They know what it's about. And I've seen it in the lives of the presidents of the seminaries who walk through this. They live this out on a daily basis. So stand with me. We're going to read verses 1 through 4 this morning. I'll continue my having you stand. I just That's ingrained in me. It's just reverence to the Word of God. And so you follow along as I read. A prayer of Abaca, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. Now, I'm going to stop for a moment. I had an Old Testament scholar, one of the tops in Southern Baptist life, come to my church in San Antonio. And he says when you get to names like that and you stumble over it because you don't know how to say it, however you say it is correct. <laughs> it's true. You know why? These are, uh, uh, what's the word I want? Whenever you take the, the, take, they take the consonants and they put an English letter to it. And so there is no correct pronunciation. If you were in Hebrew, you'd have to pronounce it correctly, but we do it in English. So whenever they do this, you can say it any way you want, and if somebody says you're wrong, tell them that a Hebrew scholar gave you permission to say you had it down right. So we don't have to get them right, but we get as close as we can. And so in verse 2, it says, Lord, I've heard the report about you, and I fear, O Lord. Revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Pariah, Selah, which is a pause. And then he goes, His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of His praise. His radiance is like sunlight, and He has rays flashing from His hand, and there is a hiding of His power. We'll use the rest of this as we go through it, but join with me as we pray. Father, we can really learn some unbelievably valuable lessons this day from this passage. Though we may not have experienced anything like what Habakkuk is experiencing we can also know that no matter where we're at in life, your hand is upon us and you're going to accomplish your goodwill and good pleasure in our lives. And one day you will bring us safely home. But Father, what we want is to be able to walk in a manner pleasing to you for whatever path you have us walk on in life. So help us to learn this day. May we learn great truths from these Old Testament men who have set the example for us to teach us so that we can be the kind of men and women you've called us to be. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. So when you get to chapter 3, you would expect this. Because in the midst of a collapse of the culture, in the midst of a collapse of a nation, which is literally what's taking place whenever this is written, he prays for revival. And so you would automatically go, you know, that's where I would want to be. I'd be praying for God to do a revival. Because chapter 3, the entire chapter 3 is a prayer. From the time he starts in verse 1 till he comes then, it has to do with he's praying to the Father in heaven. And it's going to describe his confidence in God. It's going to describe the greatness of God, not only in the past, but in the present. And the prayer comes, and here's what I find fascinating. Why is he praying? Well, the prayer comes because he has stopped and done what God told him to do. So let's do a little review. If you notice in verse 2, it says, I've heard the report about you. So I've heard. Hebrew, I have listened. I am listening. I've been paying attention. Well, what did God tell him to do in the opening of the letter? Do you remember from two weeks ago? I know sometimes it's hard to remember what you did yesterday, but from two weeks ago, what was the command given to him? Look. 
observe, stop, pay attention. God commanded him to slow it down a moment, look around, pay attention, and look what I am doing because I'm doing something that even if I told you the full details, you'd be stunned at what is about to unfold. But he told him to stop. And you remember what he did in the second chapter? And this was just last week, so you should remember this one. What did he do last week? Well, in chapter 2, verse 1, what he did was this. I'm standing at my guard posts. I've stationed myself on the ramparts. I'm keeping watch to see what you will speak to me and how I may respond to you whenever you bring reproof to me. He literally has done what God told him to do. And he's been paying attention. And now you get his reaction in the third chapter. And the way we know that God's got his attention is, if you'll notice in verse 2, he says, I've heard the report about you and I fear. Guys, fear is critical in our walk with God. It is unbelievably important. I had to do a presentation in Oxford and my title of my message was The Fear of God in Education. And I took it from Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of God is what impacts us to be able to see and understand all that is going on in our lives. And so because he has seen this, because he now knows what God's going to do, there is a dread. There is an awesomeness about God. There is an honor that he's doing because fear encompasses all of those things. It's not just a dread that you're scared to death, but it's also a, a respect and an honor. And so when he looks at what God has said he's going to do, his reaction is fear. The psalmist says, my flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. Did you know in Psalms 119, fear plays a critical element in the psalmist and all that he says about his love of God's word? Paul told the church at Corinth, in the fear of God, perfect your holiness. This fear of God is very important. Most of us don't live there like we should. Most of us are more afraid of what others think. We live in the fear of men and not the fear of God. But you, that's why he's going to come to the point where he's going to handle life because he sees the power of God. He trusts the power of God. He sees that God's overwhelming presence is going to impact everything around him, but he's going to trust God to get him through it. And it's so out of the fear of God, it leads him to pray. And what he prays for is revival. Now, his country has collapsed. The moral fabric has been completely deteriorated. Things are horrible. It is dangerous. People are dying. The whole thing around him has turned bad. So what is he praying for? Lord, please save your people. Please save this nation. Please save what's going on. But yet when he's praying this, he knows that the nation will not be saved. So what he's praying for is that when God brings a judgment upon his nation for what they've been doing wrong, that he will bring the people through. And we know that's true. We know that after 70 years in exile, what happened? God brought the people back. God revived back the nation of Israel in the most powerful way in preparation for 14 generations later that Jesus Christ would come in all of his glory. And his prayer is going to be answered. But when he's playing, it is in the PL intensive in the Hebrew, and I know that means nothing to you, but what that means is I am praying, praying, praying. I'm pouring my heart out. I'm asking for revival. I'm begging God to change and bring us to a point where we see who he is. 
And so he says in Psalms 119, the psalmist does, revive me through your righteousness. That's what he's praying. Did you know that Psalms 119 is that famous long book? I, I wonder if any of you have ever, a chapter, have you ever memorized the whole chapter? I attempted it, but my brain's too old, so it doesn't work as well as it used to anymore. It's not easy to memorize all those verses. But you know 11 times in there that the psalmist is asking God to revive him. That as he looks at the word of God, Lord, strengthen my life, make it better. Please improve. That's what he's praying for all the way through Psalms 119. He talks about the honor of God. And then he said, I want you to do it in verse 2, in the midst of the years, in the midst of my life. I want to see this in my lifetime, God. Please do this. So he's wanting to see God at work today, which we all want to. And then he prays this, in your wrath, please show mercy. And God did that in his wrath as he brought judgment. And then I want to add this. As he's praying in verse 3, you see the word Teman and the words Mount Parian. He's going back to Moses. He's going back to when God spoke to Moses back in Deuteronomy 33 too. Those tie that together in a very powerful way. So what he's doing now is he's praying. He's remembering the works of the past. And he's asking God to do in his day what he did in Moses' day. As he was trying to revive the people as they come out of the wilderness. So they'd be ready when they enter into the promised land. He is praying the same thing as his people are going to go in the wilderness. That they will come out again. So here's a guy, as life is collapsing around him, has not lost hope. He has not lost hope. His confidence is still as strong as it's always been. And he's walking by God by faith. And he's going to trust his God to be able to take care of him no matter what happens. And not only is he remembering the work of the past, but when I get to verses 4, 5, 6, 8, 9 through 13, not going to read all of that, but in verse 4, he's talking about God's majesty. He has not lost this majesty of God. We read that part of it just a moment ago. When he gets to verse 5, he's talking about the power of God, which is amazing beyond anything you and I can ever grasp or fathom. I mean, our bodies... Paul and Carol and I were in meetings yesterday. I'm, I've been taking stem cells, and we were invited to a meeting to learn how that works from a company in Dallas. So we were there. I'm stunned at the little mRNA codes that are inside those cells and how they give unbelievably specific instruction. And they think we involved. There is no way that involved when you begin to understand the, the wisdom and the power behind God's creation of all of us. This man knows the power of God. And he's trusting the power of God. He said, you're the shaker of nations in verse 6. You're the judge and the savior in verse 8. In verse 9, you're sovereign in all that you do. This is a man who is not being destroyed by the circumstances of his life, but who is standing strong, standing firm, as God's called us all to do. If I tell you to put on the full armor of God, Ephesians 6, what's the purpose of putting on the full armor of God according to that passage in Ephesians? So that we will do what? Stand firm. Tells us three, in reality, four times to stand firm. When do we stand firm? According to Ephesians 6. In the evil day. Habakkuk is in the evil day. You and I are not quite where he was. And what is he doing? He is standing firm, trusting God, asking God to continue his work in the midst of all that's going on. Did you know his prayer is not much different than the prayer of Abraham? Remember when God was visiting with Abraham and then as they got ready to leave? He said, you think we ought to tell him about Sodom? 
And so it is shared with Abraham about Sodom. And what did he do? He asked God, would you spare the city if there's just 50? Would you spare the city if there was 40? You know how that goes, all the way down. Turned out God doesn't spare the city because there's only a one, two, or three, maybe, total in the whole city that were righteous. But what is he asking for? He's asking for mercy in the midst of judgment. And Abraham was praying for mercy in the midst of judgment. And God showed mercy to Lot. Showed mercy to his daughters in the midst of one of the great judgment times in the world. Habakkuk's prayer did not stop the judgment on Jerusalem, but his prayer for mercy, God blessed. We need to be praying for our country and the people around us and our cities that God would revive the work. Things have changed. They're not like it used to be 20, 30 years ago. I've watched this from being a pastor. Things have changed, and it's not always been good. But you and I need to seek God and ask him and really make this a matter of prayer. Not something we just, Father, thank you, and would you get us back to normal? No, I mean a plea of the heart. And begging God for mercy, because that's how he works, is by showing us mercy. And remember this, that the prayer of a righteous man does what? It accomplishes much. Do not underestimate the power of walking by faith and trusting God and asking him for help. But here's where I want to go with the sermon today. This is all set up to go to the next spot. And this is only, I only got two points today. So I don't know if that's quite a good Baptist sermon or not, but that's all I have is two points. He prayed, but number point two is he quietly waited on God to work. Quietly waited on God to work. If you'll notice, go all the way down to 16, 17, 18, and 19 in your Bibles. And you're going to see this at the end of 16, I must wait. He has no choice. In the Greek, whenever you have the word must, you'll see that sometimes in the New Testament. It's the word die, D-E-I in the Greek. It means a moral necessity. This is one of those moments. He is not going to be able to push it fast or slow because God's providence and timing are always perfect. So what he has to do as he's praying is he waits now. He patiently waits. Really, the word is quietly waits. Means he's rested. Means he's settled in his heart. See, God gives you and I an amazing gift. I hope you have this gift. It's one of the greatest gifts you could ever have given to you, and it's called peace. Jesus said in John, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, So don't let your heart be troubled. It's going to be all right. You know, America lives in a day now that most people can't go to sleep at night. They're so stressed out and scared of all that's going on. They have to take all kinds of medicines to be able to make that happen. One of the greatest gifts God gives his people is a quiet heart and quiet mind. And we lay our heads down at night. We're able to go to sleep and get the rest that we need to be able to get up and face a new day. And so Jesus said, I'm leaving you peace. Habakkuk's in peace. When I'm in Cuba talking to uh, Barbara Marrero, he's the president of the seminary, and he is the president of the Baptist Convention of Cuba. He's on the forefront of the Cuban government persecution because of his position and leadership. I asked him one time recently when I was just there a few weeks ago, Barbara, you have any trouble sleeping at night? He said, you know, I don't. 
I said, under all that you're under and the stress and the threats that you face, you're sleeping all right. He said, I'm, I'm sleeping well. He said, Steve, we just trust God. We just got to trust God. It's in his hands. I will speak the truth and I'll speak it as strong as I can, but I'm going to trust God. Habakkuk is there. And if you'll notice, it's a day of distress. They are going to be invaded. He, he says that in verse 16. I'm waiting quietly for the day of distress when God brings the judgment upon Jerusalem. And in verses 17, he says, the fig trees will not blossom. There'll be no fruit on the vines. The olive trees will fail. There'll be no produce in the field. The flocks will be cut off and there'll be no cattle in the stall. You know what that means? Grocery stores are closed. There is no food. There is nothing to eat. I don't know about Greenville, but I know when I was in management with Kroger many, many long time ago in Houston in the 70s, they told us one day in Houston, and Kroger's is big in Houston, that we had one day supply of food in the city. So I would think it's no different today than it was back then, especially with the way things have happened lately. There's not that much. It doesn't take much to lose everything. That's where they are. They have no food. They have nothing to drink. Everything's gone downhill, and it's going to end. What would you do if today we get a home and our country collapsed this evening? I mean, it just collapses. And then suddenly, within a few days, you have nothing in your pantry or in your refrigerator. And the stores are closed. What would be your reaction? If you turn the news on, the Fox or CNN or any of the local ones, and you're getting nothing but horrific stuff, what would be your reaction? What I love about Abaca is his reaction. You and I are not going to have to do that tonight, but he's going to have to do that. And so what is the reaction in verse 18? In verse 18, his response is stunning to me. This is a, an amazing ending to the book. A culture has collapsed. Evil's winning. The Chaldeans are coming. Devastation is going to take place. And Abaca has absolutely no power to stop any of this. So what does he do in 18? I will exalt in the Lord. I will exalt in the Lord. Not a word you and I use very often. But you know what it means? We win. That's what exalting is. It's triumph. We're winning. How does a man look around and see his whole country collapsing, his culture collapsing, everything about it collapsing, people disappearing, people going into exile, and he's going, we're winning. Because he's a man who knows God. He's a man who understands the word of God. And he knows no matter what's going on that the providence of God is at work in the midst of all that's happening. And he knows that God's going to bring it to a good finish. He will show mercy in the midst of all of this. And the people of God will be blessed through all that they're having to face. So he's saying, we're winning. Paul tells the church at Rome to do the same thing. In chapter 5, he's going to say, we exult in the hope of his glory. We exult in the hope of his glory. Hope means certainty. Glory's not here yet. In one sense, we are glorified, Scripture says in Romans 8. So when I look out on this congregation this morning, I see nothing but people who are in Christ who are glorified. Now, you don't look like it, but you're glorified. But one day we will be glorified in all. We'll be as he is. That day will happen someday. But he says, we exalt. We're excited. We're going to win. 
We do not lose. We're going to win in Christ. And one day it's going to end well. That's what he's doing. And not only that, not only does he exalt, but look what else he does. I'm rejoicing the God of my salvation. You got to know something. Joy always follows winning. Joy always follows winning. And he knows he's winning. So rejoicing is not forced, is a true feeling of his heart as he rejoices in the God of his salvation. And I did this, if you can go back eight weeks ago, when I preached on the will of God here at Thanksgiving. What is the will of God in our lives? I know exactly God's will for your life. I told you that on December the 18th. Rejoice. Pray. Give thanks. For this is the will of God. Very few people live there. But that's where we're supposed to live. That's God's will. That's where Habakkuk is living. And he's going to say, if you'll notice verse 19, God is my strength. God gives us power. And he says, my feet are like the feet of deer. Go home and Google a picture of a deer standing on the side of a mountain. It can be so steep, it's unbelievable that if you were to stand there and slip, you'd fall to your death. And, the, and these different types of animals, that, the mountain goats and everything else that are standing there are standing at this kind of angle and they're so secure, it's not even funny. He's talking about in the most precarious of situations, his feet are like the feet of a deer. He is solidly planted on what God is going to do and it's going to be all right. And he says, I get to walk in the high places because of it. You know, a few weeks ago, whenever I was privileged to be a part of winning the state championship in six-man football, I told you that story, and I'm a first-year coach, and uh, we end up winning, and it was, it was amazing. Well, I was a JV head coach until they brought me up to varsity, and then I, I played a role in the finals and the playoffs of the last four games as we made it all the way to state. But I brought up about eight or nine of my, my JV boys to be on the varsity, and in the championship game, four of my boys won the game. It wasn't the varsity guys, it was the JV, the freshmen and the sophomores who won the game. But I'll never forget one of the plays. I'd, in, I'd invented a play. Uh, and when you're a preacher, you really don't know what you're doing, but you take a chance, it might work. But I, in six-man, they, they onside kick everything. And I don't understand why they do that, because we very rarely would get it. But that's what the teams will do. And so I asked my kicker, I said, would you learn to pooch kick it up to about the 25-yard line? Kick it as high as you can get it. Drop it down. on the. I want it right on the sideline. If it hits and goes out of bounds, we get penalized. But I want you to get it as high as you can. And then I put the two fastest boys that I had on my team. Both freshmen. They were faster than anybody on the varsity. Kids are amazing athletes. One of them's dad was a quarterback in the NFL. And so we had pooch kick it. Well, we never recovered it, but they'd have to catch it, and we'd tackle them and stop them dead in their track. We did that in the state final game. It was back and forth. It was back and forth. High-scoring game, 50 to 40s, and we're doing that. And I called the play. We kicked it. Old JP ran down the field. He jumped up and caught the ball before they could get it, and it broke their back, and we became state champions because of the play. I tell all that, just a story, not to fill time. What do you think JP did afterwards? He gets up off the ground, and he's got the ball. What do you think he did? Oh, that's easy. No, that kid came sprinting off the field. He 
we have about 70 people on our sideline. He comes, he found me. He came running and he jumped into my arms. I go, come on, JP, let's take it easy here. Why did he do that? He was so excited because we had won the play. When you understand, guys, that in Christ we win, that even when the world around us doesn't look good, we triumph and we rejoice. It's not fake. It's not made up because we can see what a lot of people don't see. We don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. And if you take seriously your faith in Jesus, and it's not just a Sunday thing that you do, it's not just coming with a youth group and you walk up here and do a few things on weekend and say, oh yeah, I like that. No, it's living every day. I trust who Christ is. I am not ashamed of who Jesus is. Paul told that to the church at Rome. I'm not ashamed. He tells Timothy in the second letter, Timothy, join with me. Don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Be willing to stand with me, young man. And Timothy was. That is who Habakkuk is. And so in the collapse of society, you do not see a collapse of this man. He's a man who walks through and is strong. And I guarantee his impact and influence on others would be stunning. If we're going to see anything good turn about around what we see in our own country, it is going to take men and women who have the courage to stand firm in the midst of what you see, who are not afraid, who are willing to say, this is what I believe, and I stand firm on these truths. And I am grateful for God, and so God, please show mercy to all that goes on. But you know how you're going to do that? Remember Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous walk by faith. Are you there? My job is to try to motivate you as best I can, but are you there? I can't do that for you, and you cannot do that for me. But if you have any understanding of who you are in Christ, you will be there. You know, in just a moment, the staff will come and lead us, and we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. Don't take this as a trite thing. This is very important. It's in one sense, it's super simple. I like it that way because we don't have a lot of fancy stuff around all of this. We just stop a moment. Remember, it was his broken body and his shed blood. That is my only hope. I have no hope apart from that. But my hope is so real that it will affect how I live. And on this day, I get to join you guys. And what we're going to do in a moment is we're going to preach a second sermon. You say, oh, no, we can't go through two sermons. Yes, you can. Did you know that when you do the Lord's Supper, you're proclaiming the death of Christ and the word is preached? We are preaching the gospel of who Jesus is to each other as we do this in remembrance of him. So as we enter these moments, let's prepare our hearts so that we can give him the glory and the honor and that we can walk out of here today standing firm and we'll be like Habakkuk. We're winning and we're excited about it and we're going to live it and we're going to stand firm. So Father, we thank you for the day. The privilege and honor that we get to know you. May we never forget it was by your grace you called us into your kingdom. It was by your grace that you've forgiven us of our sins. It was by your grace that you've adopted us in your family. It was by grace that you give us the privilege and honor to call you Father. It is by your grace that we have a hope of glory. It's by your grace that Christ lives in us. And it's by your grace that one day we will go home 
and we will be with you always. So, Father, as we stop now here in a moment to give an opportunity to reflect and to think, help us to see and to understand in a clear way the amazing work of Jesus in our lives. Is my prayer this day in Jesus' name. Amen.